Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and these podcasts are an attempt to appreciate the way in which a man sometimes known as the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, holds up and holds out Jesus Christ as Saviour. Spurgeon was born in 1834 and died in 1892. He was a prodigiously gifted man and yet a humble man, and he preaches a sermon this week that we're studying on humility. Now, if you want to follow along and learn more, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can go to mediagratii.org slash podcasts, and there you can find the From the Heart of Spurgeon podcast and sign up to a weekly newsletter. That will tell you which sermons we're reading in any given week, and also the featured sermon for that particular week. So this week, it's sermons 360 to 366, and our featured sermon is Humility, sermon 365. Then next week, sermons 367 to 373. And our featured sermon then will be 369, the first sermon in the tabernacle. This week, though, Humility. Spurgeon preached this on Sunday morning, the 17th of March, 1861, at Exeter Hall in the Strand, and his text is Acts chapter 20 and verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and it is prepared and preached with the anticipation that they will move into the Metropolitan Tabernacle within the space of a few days. Now, bear in mind that uh, this great building is the talk of the town in some respects. Uh, It's also going to be one of the largest church buildings, not just in the country, uh, but perhaps at that time across the world. It's probably with all that in mind, with the weight and the pressure of those things pressing upon him, that Spurgeon preaches this sermon. It is not often, he says, that a man may speak safely about his own humility. Humble men are mostly conscious of great pride, while those who are boastful of humility have nothing but false pretense and really lack and want that humility. And so he's asking whether or not any of us are really good judges as to our own pride or humility, because we can even become proud of our own humble condition. But he's going to take this, he's going to press it home, He's going to speak, first of all, of the comprehensiveness of humility, because the text says you serve the Lord with all humility. Secondly, the trials to which our humility will be subjected. Thirdly, arguments by which humility ought to be supported, uh, generated, sustained in our souls. And then fourthly, some practical effects of humility, in which he will urge us to show forth with him in our daily lives that lowliness of mind which becomes a true servant of Jesus Christ. First then, the comprehensiveness of humility, that we are not to serve the Lord merely with humility, but with all humility. And Spurgeon then is going to set up a contrast between the various kinds of pride that can characterise the heart and the humility that ought to characterise every true Christian. And he identifies various stripes of pride, the pride of the heretic, the pride of the papist, the pride of the curious, the pride of the persecutor, and the pride of the impenitent, the one who won't repent. The heretic utters false doctrines because he thinks his own judgment is better than the word of God. 
He is no disciple, but a disputant. He does not like to be told what he should believe. He insists on believing what he likes. He is not willing then to sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus, but rather he wants to puff himself up and basically relying on his own human wisdom is going to decide what he himself will believe. So he subjects the truth of God to his own opinion. Then is the papist, the uh, the Roman Catholic, and here Spurgeon is thinking specifically of self-righteousness, the person who wants to win heaven as the reward of his own doings. And Paul, who wrote these words in Acts chapter 20, um, or rather of whom these words are spoken in Acts chapter 20, they were written by Luke, um, Spurgeon says that Paul was free from this notion, a works righteousness. Paul had learnt to count his righteousness as filthy rags. Then there's the pride of the curious. This is the man who is not content with simplicities, but needs to pry into mysteries. He would, if he could, climb to the eternal throne and read between the folded leaves and break the seven seals of the mysterious book of destiny. In other words, he wants to know things that God has not revealed. He is determined to pry into mysteries that God is content to leave hidden. He imagines, perhaps, that he can reconcile matters which uh, God has simply revealed. He wants to insist upon human reason uh, accomplishing something that perhaps it was never intended to, or he will search out into things that were never intended to be fully known. Then there's the pride of the persecutor. This is a man who's not content with his own notions, but imposes them upon others. He judges, smashes, and destroys those who differ from him. And the Apostle Paul, of whom again these words are spoken, uh, always acted with wisdom and kindness as a converted man toward those who differed from him. He did not have that spirit of Elijah to bring down fire from heaven upon any man, but rather suffered long, hoped all things, endured all things. It was all humility. And then there's the impenitent man who will not bow the knee to Jesus Christ, who does not think he has sinned, who does not believe he has anything to confess, who does not believe that there is uh, any problem with him. Here then are some instances of pride. And yet there are many kinds of humility too. Paul showed humility in a variety of daily ways, preaching and living. Paul's humility was marked both in his preaching and his living. And Spurgeon wants to show us what humility might look like. And uh, he talks about three different forms or instances of humility the humility that comes before serving God, the humility that comes during the act of service, and humility after the service is done. The humility that comes before serving God is that humility that recognises that whether we preach or pray or give gifts or whatever we do, it is needful to bend exceedingly low before we enter upon the work, for if not, self-seeking and self-glorifying will lie at the bottom of all, and God neither can nor will accept us. So here really is a question of motive or intent. Why do I want to do the things that I want to do? What is my ultimate aim or goal? Too many Christians have little of that humility. 
If you require a man to occupy an honourable position in the church, says Spurgeon, you can find scores. But if you need one who shall be a menial in the house of God, who shall be the least in God's heritage, how difficult to find an individual. We all like to be on the platform. We all like to be in the spotlight, says Spurgeon. We are perhaps glad for God to be glorified as long as we can share a little of his glory. But that was not Paul. You could discover at once that his solitary aim was to win souls and to glorify Christ. Let us labour after this then, this preparatory humility, as part of our all humility. Then there is humility during the act. Nothing but the most extraordinary grace can keep us in our right position while we are serving God and God, can, God is honouring us. As soon as we begin to do anything, as soon as we begin to accomplish anything, there's that whisper in our ears, you have done well, you are doing well. And then pride comes in and spoils everything. And we anger our Father and bring grief into our own spirits when we think of crowning ourselves instead of crowning God, worshipping our own image instead of bending before the Lord God Jehovah. And Spurgeon again speaks to all and to himself. Let us take heed that while serving God, we serve him as the angels do, who with two wings cover their faces, with two cover their feet, and with two fly upon his errands. That imagery of humility in the sight of God. And then there's the humility after the service is done. Because too often we look back upon what's been accomplished and then we congratulate ourselves, we pat ourselves on the back. Now Spurgeon is not against honouring God's servants and he mentions uh, examples, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. It would be wrong in us if we didn't honour God's servants for it would seem as if we dishonoured the master but it will never do for the servant of God to honour himself. So let another praise you and not your own tongue. You don't applaud yourself. You don't draw attention to yourself. It's so easy for us to uh, make sure that people are aware of what we've done and what we've accomplished. And we just point out that, that we were involved in this or that or the other thing. But no, says Spurgeon, labour for God's sake, for the church's sake, for your own sake, to serve the Lord with all humility, before the act, during the service, and when all is done. And that is to serve the Lord with all humility of mind. Now doubtless there are other ways of teasing that topic apart, but that temporal sequence, that before, during and after, that's a good way of uh, studying out a virtue like humility, uh, especially with regard to something active like service. And Spurgeon then has done this contrast and then this development, uh, kinds of pride that need to be identified in opposition to humility, heresy, self-righteousness, excessive curiosity, prying into things that we are not for our business, persecution and impenitence, all of which are to be contrasted with a man who is humble before he serves, understanding that this is for God and not for him, who is humble while he serves, who recognises that whatever he accomplishes is from God, and then humility after he has served, who does not feel the need to draw attention to what he has done. Now the trials of humility. Secondly, the dangers through which humility has to pass. And here again Spurgeon does something quite interesting. 
because he identifies a number of trials, gifts, success, and enjoyment of the master's presence. But in each of these, he says that it cuts both ways. So great gifts and little gifts make pride easy. Success and lack of success are a trial for humility and enjoying the master's presence and long-continued doubts will both breed pride. What does he mean? Well, one of the trials to which humility will be exposed is that possession of great ability. Let a man feel that he possesses more power than another, more eloquence, more mental acumen, more learning, more imagination, and he is so apt to sit down and say, I am something, I am somebody in the church. And we need to remember that whatever gifts we have, we are what God has made us. The honour never can be to the thing itself, but to the mighty one who made it what it is. If the vessel has been made for honour, it is still the maker of the vessel who deserves the glory. Now, while great talents then can make it hard for a man to maintain humility, Spurgeon asks, shall I surprise you when I say that little talents have precisely the same effect? And why is that? Because while the man with great talents is tempted to Uh, be satisfied in what he has, the man who has very little talents loves to bring them to the fore and make sure everybody can see them precisely because they are all he has. Now, says Spurgeon, I frequently had this observation made to me in the most pompous manner by some little minister. Oh, sir, I feel the danger of your position and I always make it a matter of prayer to God that you may be kept humble. Well, says Spurgeon, Actually, the problem is not that I am inclined to pride, although he's certainly not going to deny that, and he'll come to that later on, but this gentleman is clearly not very humble himself. You may be a king and be humble. You may be a beggar and be proud. You may be great and yet little in your own esteem. You may be little and yet greater in your estimation than those who are the greatest. There are some then who are really just bringing others down in the way that they speak. Then again, there is success. Success has a sorry influence upon humility. When we think we've accomplished something, then we can easily exalt ourselves. Great success is like a full cup. It's hard to hold on to it with a steady hand, says Spurgeon. It's a, it's a really striking image, isn't it? Great success, like a full cup, is hard to hold it with a steady hand. And yet, lack of success has just the same tendency. When we're standing on the pinnacle, Satan often says, throw yourself down. But when we don't have success, Spurgeon talks about the man who couldn't get a congregation and who insisted upon it that it was because he was a better preacher than the man who did. In other words, we we find reasons why. We, We have this twisted way of finding out reasons why we're not as impressive as people think uh, we are, or, or as we think, rather, we ought to be. So we tell ourselves, the men that get the congregations are always the weakest men. They're the men with the least mental power. While we who have but a few, a mere handful, we're the intellectual people. The mob will always run after the foolish. So the brother who gets no success comforts himself with this thought. Providence is quite wrong. 
and the Christian public quite mistaken that he ought to be, if things had been right, the most popular man living, and that it's quite a mistake that he is not. This is the attitude that says we must be doing something right because we're pure and we're small. We, are, uh, we clearly know the blessing of God because we are despised by men. Now, there's a proper connection there, but there's also a kind of boasting that has crept in. Because no one pays attention, therefore we tell ourselves we must be doing something right, rather than asking whether or not perhaps we are actually preaching the gospel that we ought to be. Then again, says Spurgeon, if you enjoy the master's presence, if you walk in the sunlight, it has a tendency to make you proud. If you have nothing but full assurance, you might end up presumptuous. And that's a danger, that we can assume that everything will just go well with us. But on the other hand, he says, also long-continued doubts will breed pride. What is it to doubt God and mistrust his promise but pride? If you are constantly in a state of spiritual doom and gloom, it is because you are not willing to believe God in the dark. You think, in fact, that God deals harshly with you in allowing you to be despondent at all. You ought to have joy and satisfaction, and so your doubts and fears are as ready parents of pride as assurance could have been. So Spurgeon sums it up this way. I might go on with these two sides of the question all the morning. There's not a position in the world where a man cannot be humble if he have grace. There is not a station under heaven where a man will not be proud if left to himself. He's working through these these various situations and conditions and he's saying that at these different extremes we're so easily tempted to pride. Whether we are lifted to a high place or dropped to a low place, the twisted heart of man will instinctively bring forth pride. And so all of these things that we go through can prompt us away from humility and toward self-exaltation. And that's quite crushing. That leaves us saying, Lord, what am I going to do if I'm so prone to pride? Lord, where do I turn and what do I look at? Where do I go and what can I do? Well, then says Spurgeon, here are some arguments to provoke you to humility of spirit. These are the things that you and I need to think about in order to keep us from pride before, during and after service in the face of all these particular challenges to our humility. Arguments from yourself, arguments from Christ and arguments from God's goodness. Arguments from yourself. Who and what are you? You are a creature. Man at his best estate is like is altogether vanity, his life a dream, an empty show. You are not like the angels. You are going to die, you are going to rot in the grave. How dare you then be proud? How can you remember that you are a fallible creature, weak and foolish, and yet be puffed up? Every time your humility gives way and your pride lifts up its head, think that you are mortal and the skeleton may teach you humility. But go beyond your mere creatureliness. You are also a sinful creature. You are depraved. When a child of God is at his best, he's no better than a sinner at his worst, except so far as God has made him to differ. And then let us think not only that we are depraved in our inclination, but also in our action. And how then can we be proud? 
Sinners whose highest deservings are the wrath of God and the hot flames of hell, how can we venture for a single moment to stand as those who had done anything meritorious or could claim anything of our God? Think of yourself as a creature, says the preacher. Think of yourself as a sinner, says the preacher, both in inclination and by action, both in motive, intent and in deed. And how then can you think highly of yourself? And then reasons in Christ. What was he himself like? He who was God but became man was never exalted above measure. You never detect in him one proud or scornful glance upon the meanest of the mean or the vilest of the vile. And says Spurgeon, this is interesting, you didn't even notice him being humble. Sometimes we love to draw attention to our humility. Did you see me serving those people? Did you see me being the nothing, the no one, the nobody who's stooping down to show myself such a servant of Jesus Christ? Oh, well done you, says Spurgeon. So when you're purse proud, that is proud of your wealth or talent proud, proud of your gifts or beauty proud, proud of your looks, think that you are unlike your master. There was nothing in him that would keep man back from him, but everything that would draw them to him. Pride is obnoxious. Pride is repellent. And there was nothing of that in Jesus Christ. So when you see the incarnate God with the basin in his hand and the towel on his arm, washing his disciples' feet, and here we are, instead of washing other men's feet, we're looking for them to anoint our heads and pour on the oil of a flattering unction so that we may say to ourselves, see how great I am. Now, isn't this something perhaps we need to be thinking about with regard to things like, in our own day, the obvious channel, social media? So much self-congratulation, so much self-exaltation, so much drawing of attention to what we are and what we have done. Oh, I'm, I'm just telling people what's happened. And everybody says, oh, aren't you great, and applauds you. How careful we need to be in such a sphere not to draw attention to ourselves. And then yet another source for arguments, though of course there are so many I couldn't mention them all, says Spurgeon, God's goodness toward us. What do you have that you have not been given? Spurgeon talks about people who are proud of their election. They seem to read the text, put on as the elect of God, pride and self-conceit. They think they are saved and they despise those who are not. They think they are God's chosen ones and they look down upon those who are not. And if anybody differs with them, see that, see that you hate one another with a pure heart fervently seems to be the way in which they read the scriptures. Now, if you're a chosen child of God, if you've been brought from the, the, the pit and the flame in order to know the mercy of God in Christ, bought with the precious blood of Jesus, how can that lift you up? Yes, it might exalt your heart in gratitude, but it tends to keep you very low in the dust of self-abasement. The very gifts you enjoy are given you by electing love. God has given them to you, not because you deserved them. It is mercy. It is grace. It is because of his sovereign love that you've been made into a vessel of honour. 
and when you understand then something of the goodness of God toward you, how can you boast in yourself who would be in hell were it not for the mercy of a saving God? These are powerful arguments, are they not? Don't they press into our souls? Don't they embarrass us that we can think so highly of ourselves? Don't we become ashamed of our lack of shame? Don't we become grieved over our lack of grief? Don't we see that that we are just so pompous and so prone to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think? And so says Spurgeon, coming very briefly to the end of his address, I speak to myself as well as to others. He talks about an excellent lady who accosted him one day and told me that she'd always prayed that I might be kept humble. Of course, he says, you can imagine a little sarcasm in his voice, a little smile on his face. I was excessively grateful to her, although it was a very usual thing. So I said to her, but do you not need to pray the same prayer for yourself? Oh no, said she, there is no necessity. I do not think there is any tendency in me to be proud. Well, I assured the good lady that I thought it was necessary for her to pray always, for as sure as ever she thought she had no tendency to be proud, that proved at once that she was proud already. So if we've been listening to this sermon, reading this sermon and thinking, I hope someone else is paying attention to this, or I know someone for whom this would be a great sermon, that's the very point at which we need to tremble. We are never, never so much in danger of being proud, says Spurgeon, as when we think we are humble. And he asks then, what does this mean for us? And he's speaking very particularly to the congregation that is shortly to enter into this metropolitan tabernacle, this enormous building there in the heart of London. We are about to enter into a large edifice, he says, having large designs in our hearts and hoping that God will give us large success. Let us have humble motives in all this. How easy it would be to say with Nebuchadnezzar, behold this great Babylon which I have built. We must not go to our pulpit and pews with this soft note ringing in our ears. Here I will make myself a nest and gain a great name. Or here we will be members of the largest Baptist church to receive a part of the honour which is bestowed upon the success of the ministry. No, when you have such blessings, you should be marvelling that God should give such grace to such a congregation that it should know such favour. And then, What if they're settled in their work and God continues to bless them? Let us still keep very low before him. If you want to lose God's presence, it can easily be done, says Spurgeon. Pride can shut the door in the face of Christ. If you write for yourself, God is for me, let me be proud. You say with Jehu, come, I will show you my zeal for the Lord of hosts. And God will turn away. God will will not favour the person who is full of himself. And, says Spurgeon, what about about you who have already served, those who've laboured for Christ as evangelists and ministers and teachers or whatever? Do not sit down and congratulate yourselves upon the past. Go home, think of the mistakes you've made, errors committed, follies into which you've been betrayed, and say with Job, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes see you, and therefore I abhor myself in dust and ashes. Don't imagine that because you've accomplished anything, 
therefore you have something in which to boast. There is a great deal of difference, says Spurgeon, between being humble and being humbled. And he who will not be humble shall be humbled. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he shall lift you up, lest he leave you, because you hold your head so high. As ever, Spurgeon concludes by calling on those who do not know Christ to go with faith to Jesus Christ, to put their confidence in him alone, and then, and only then, will they find humility. But I wonder if for ourselves, if we're genuinely Christians ourselves, where this digs into us and what a fearful difference it ought to make in the way that we live. Perhaps, especially given our own day and age, we listen to or read through a sermon like this and we say, is he not going too far? Does he not have too low opinion of himself? Is he uh, not in danger of damaging our self-esteem? I think perhaps that says more about the native pride of our own time and place than it does about anything twisted or uh, damaged in Mr. Spurgeon. It's because we think too highly of ourselves that we're fearful that we might think too little of ourselves. The problem with most of us is that we don't know ourselves or that we're trying to defend ourselves. Whereas if we understood what we are as creatures and as sinners, if we measured ourselves next to the goodness and the glory of God in Jesus Christ, we would understand just how prone we are to pride, how easily we wander out of the way of humility. Now, we may not have the same distinct temptations. We may not have huge buildings to go to. We may not have great blessings. We may not have accomplished as much as some of Spurgeon's friends had done. But remember that we can be as proud in our smallnesses as they could be in their greatnesses. And we need to watch our hearts then, that God would keep us low. And as we come into the next days and weeks and months, this and future years, may God help us to be humble men and women, humble in our service, humble beforehand, not seeking our own glory, humble as we go about it, not patting ourselves on the back, and humble afterwards, not assuming that it is our grace and gifts that have accomplished great things, but tracing all back to the God of all grace, the God of great mercy, the God who favours the undeserving, exalting him and saying with David, with Paul, with Spurgeon, and with every right-thinking Christian, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. I hope that's profitable for you, and I hope you'll join us next week to read through sermons 367 to 373, or if a daily sermon is too much, then just focus on sermon 369, the first sermon in the tabernacle. And I look forward to you joining us then. Thank you for listening, and take care. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.